All that kind of ties up pretty neatly, but is, is really important. Yeah, good point. And the, Holy, the Spirit is a critical part to this, which is noteworthy too because it's about what God is doing. It's a, it's a key part. In fact, that's what, the whole thing we're talking about today, Spirit versus law. <clears throat> that's, what, that's a good summary of this five verses. Yes, Mike. So in verse 1, I think it's interesting because the New King James has an added phrase which I think really kind of distorts the idea. And it says, He has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth. And so with that phrase in there, it almost indicates that you know, it's our obedience, our work of obedience that justifies us, right? But I think that when you take that out and when you look how it plays out with the rest of the other translations, it makes a lot more sense. And so um, for those that, you know, have maybe the New King James and any others, the King James or whatever, that might have that phrase in there, I think that really, that really may be kind of a, kind of a stumbling block um, when we're, depending on how you look at that phrase itself. Yeah, this is, I didn't notice that they actually said that. I'm, I'm going to look that up too, because I'm curious and see if they, if they added that, it's just they're, they're trying to clarify something. Or if the underlying Greek documents, because that's, that's King James Version, it's King James, right? New King James. Oh, it's New King James. New okay, King so that one, well, that was still Yeah, it's okay. Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, kind of where they kind of, you know, they, they tried to, but. Yeah, and the reason I'm bringing this up is I'm trying to figure out if there's actually a textual difference in Textus Receptus versus the newer Greek, or if they're actually adding this as just an interpretation to try to make sense out of that. I'm not sure what that up. Yeah, good point. I did not catch that. All right, anything else? Yes, Just to the principle, I think, in verse 3 is something that applies to us as well. Um, and we need to make sure that we don't overlook that we can fall into the same trap of being it, begun by the Spirit and now trying to be perfected in the flesh. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. We can totally fall into the trap of, of verse 3 where it's like we, we start with the Spirit but then we end thinking by human effort. I do think it sounds weird to say this, but I think there can be a progression where when you get baptized, you know that you are coming with, with nothing in your hands, right? Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And then you start to go change your life, and then you start, which is, of course, exactly what's supposed to happen, right? But then you start thinking, well, I'm saved. I, you know, I still got problems. And then the thing is about, if, you, if you're a Christian for a while, you get better at things, but you keep turning over rocks, and you keep finding more sludge. Right? You find more problems if you keep digging deeper, which, of course, is good because you're digging deeper. But then you say, hey, I don't know. Am I, am I safe? And I never thought – somebody told me – they knew somebody who became a Christian. And he, the, he, I think he worked with his Christians. He saw them. He's like, well, how are things going? About two weeks after he became a Christian. Like, ah. He says, you know, I, I just – I'm just really frustrated. He's like, oh, what's going on here? You know, I think you've been Christian all, all of two weeks. You're, you're like a senior Christian now, right? And it's like, I just, I just keep finding more problems. But you feel like things, things are getting better fast. So it's like, dude, it's been two weeks. <laughs> you're like, that news for you. It's going to be a long effort. Oh, but but I, mean, I think you're actually right about that, which is why, by the way, we're going to talk about how can we fall into the same traps. So like, not in order to fall into the same trap, but how to avoid falling into the same trap. Because I think there's something to that. In fact, I'll tell you something. And this is strange because... The only time I've mentioned something like sin management in here was to say we need to have more than just sin management. 
But after really studying Galatians again, after not doing it for a while, there's a weird thing happening with me. I noticed that I found that being motivated to not think of the flesh was weirdly not getting easier. And why is that? Okay, I specifically said we need to move beyond sin management, right? It's what some people think of when they get stuck in this mode, which is, of course, you know, part of it, of course, but it's only one part of it. And I, think, I was thinking about it. I think the reason is, like, when you would focus on the fact of what God has done for you and how you have a relationship with a God who would send his son to die on a cross for you, that changed you. And then I was thinking about it, and then this verse popped in my head. It's in the three... Verse 1, it says, I, I'm saying it's weird. It's almost like a, a spell has been cast over me. Which is exactly what Paul says in verse 1, except for the fact that it's going the wrong direction, right? So I think there's something to that. Yes? It's more than that, because you start back with the two words as I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's not sin management. It's becoming, it's no longer living, but Christ living in you. So we have to go, don't get to the laws and the rules and the regulations. You go to Christ and see what he looked like, what his life looked like, and you imitate that because it should no longer be us. That's not going to be an easy road either, but... It's the life that he tells us. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. And that should look like something. Right. Good point. Yeah, you've got to connect this back to this massive change of identity. Where it's not you there anymore. Right? And that's why I think the trap comes sometimes, where the sin management trap comes, is that what we might have trying to do is focusing on this dying self and trying to fix that dying body. It's like, no, you, you can't just be the not this, the don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. You have to think about this. Like, but what are you supposed to do? What is the positive thing you have to fill that vacuum with? And it's Christ. And when you do that, you find that it starts to be easier. Mitch? Well, since we're going back into two. <laughs> <laughs> Wrong direction. <laughs> well, I've, I've talked to you about this, and I feel like this is a good place to bring it up. But Peter was chastised by Paul. I mean, he's bringing an example of someone going back and... He says that Peter was acting because um, he withdrew himself and held himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcised. So he was fearing something. He, he was putting himself back in instead of having Christ emptying himself and Christ is in me. And so that is the cycle that we get into. We are putting ourselves back in. We're fearing something, whether... What, what will the other Christians think of me? What will that congregation over there think of this congregation? Um, we, we can fear something instead of allowing Christ to live in us. Okay, that, that is true. It's a good way to look at it. Like, we, we can get so focused on these other things and that the fear sets in. It's almost like I think what you're saying is, why did that fear set in? Because you're not focused on the right thing. And First John almost makes the exact same point. There is no fear in love. I've got to read the context here of what he's talking about there. But it's like if you know, if you focus on what Jesus has done for you and the way that he loves you, because in the context, it's very clear that's what he's talking about. He specifically said, I'm not talking about how you love God, I'm talking about how God loves you. Now you're focused on that positive element, and if God loves you, 
Everything else just kind of fades away. Good point. Yes, sir. I guess to sort of broaden this out a little bit, I found myself kind of thinking the same thing as what the same kind of change in frame of mind you're thinking. And it's, it's become easier for me to do that as we see what's going on in the world around us. And that, I mean, when I was growing up, younger, we were mostly fighting over like, what, what are the income tax rates going to be, right? Now we're fighting over like, what is the, what's the baseline of our culture, right? These culture wars, and not to say one side right or the other, but I'm, I think the right got it wrong for a while in trying to focus on getting the power and getting things passed by law, whereas the left was really focused on the culture, the education system, all the institutions, the businesses, getting them on their side. And now you see what's the right being drawn into the culture war. So now we're in this big culture war and think, who cares about what the tax rates are if we can't even get our culture right? <laughs> we can't find anything to unite on a base level, right? So I, I can see, I feel myself thinking more in that frame of mind, not only here, but just in general in the world. Oh, that is so true. Yeah, it's like, we were, before, we seemed to share those certain cultural attributes, and so we were, like, our people were what should be the income tax rate, bargaining over number, right? It just feels like, like man, I wish I missed those days. Now, now that I, we don't even know what a woman is, we can't find these things. It's like, we're now we're questioning all these core things. You're right, I do think, I've seen the same thing, we're all getting sucked into this culture war. We, and even, like, changing laws, who cares if we change laws? We haven't changed hearts in a certain sense. Right, and it ends with the changing hearts, right? That's, that's... Well, and, yeah, it's, and so, and I feel like we, we might have winning a consolation prize when all we get is a change of law, but we didn't change anybody's hearts because of what happens if you didn't change anybody's hearts, then eventually enough people are going to change their minds about things they're just going to vote and change law anyway. And then you're stuck again. Yes, right. This is true, okay, if we, if we don't have a keen eye on hope, what can happen is, is that conviction of sin can actually be turned against us, and can break us. I have heard of Christians who got so frustrated, because like, I'm not good enough, that they just gave up. They just stopped. And so you're, you're right, that person who's been a Christian for two weeks, they need to be not just patted on the back, like, oh, well, good job, you're trying to look hard, it's like, okay, you've got to understand the relationship. Yeah, you do need your, your heart's in the right place. You've got to have that hope, otherwise you're going to drive yourself nuts. I mean, that is, I, I agree. I think some people really get through into a dark place with that. And, and Paul, he calls the law the ministry of death. 
And I remember reading that and I was like, what? Like, if Paul didn't say that, and somebody says that, oh, Paul, we have a whole lot here, buddy. You can't say that. That seems pretty. That is kind of flaw. Okay, but what's going on there? He talks about how he just convicts us of sin, which is exactly what we're supposed to do, but absence of this hope where God's willing to turn us around, it can put us in a really dark place. There's, there's little doubt about that. Yes, ma'am.
what had happened is it hit a knot to the tree and it bent. So it formed kind of like a hook. They kept trying to pull it out and pick it up, so they just, they just buried the guy. And this is also, by the way, you've ever heard where people will say, well, people who are crucified are not buried. Now that, that's mostly true. The Roman Empire didn't allow, generally allow the people to be buried. It appears they had exceptions for Jews. This is Yehohan. Okay, this is a very Jewish name. This guy was allowed to be buried. They did, they did seem to have exceptions for Jews. So this, that seems to be the case. In times of peace, in times of war, different. But the thing is, is we know that what that wood is. Wood is a, it's an olive tree. Well, olive trees don't get that tall. And this fits what a lot of the other research says. They can do it at eye level and on a street. So when you're walking down a street, you were forced to make eye contact with this guy. You remember in the Gospel accounts where they're, they're bringing Jesus through, there's this big procession, there's all these weeping women, and Simon of Cyrene, you get to the back of this guy, he's trying to get into the town, and you've got to imagine the season now, here we go, and then what happens, well he gets dragged into it, he has to carry the cross, Romans over because if you get over here, you've got to carry this thing, and I mean that's the sort of thing that would happen, because it would be done out on the street, you were forced to walk past it, and so he said portray, but this was done publicly, people, this was not done in the corner, and so this was intended to send a message, which probably fits some of the other things we're going to see in Galatians 3. But, I mean, people, people knew about this. This was not done in a farm. All right, any other questions or comments about any of that? So let's do this. Let's take up, I want to take up Robin's question. That we, we started to talk about last week, and I, I, I looked at this and I was like, okay, I, there's some other things we want to get through. She brought up the question of how are Christians judged? And, and this is important because as Paul goes on, especially in chapter 3, 11, and 12, he's going to point out how the difference between belong versus being justified by faith. And so you got these two different options. Well, what does this look like? Because there are places in the New Testament that seem to imply Christians are judged. So what's the difference? How do we how do we work with this into a system that makes sense? Hold on. Is a good question, right? Yes. Okay. What do y'all think about that? Obviously, a lot of what we say is what we think because we don't 100% know. We only know the little bit that we're told about how this is going to take place, right? So in my mind, I have an idea of how this is going to happen. But is it real or not? But Robin and I talked about this and, and afterward. And in my mind, I see, you know, the Bible talks about everything's going to be brought up, basically, good, what we've done good and what we've done, we've done bad. And to stand before, before God and to have him say, this is your life. These are the things that you have done. These are the things that you have, have, have done against me. But because of your faith, like Roy said, because of my mercy and my grace, 
these are no longer an account, enter in. And so in my mind, that's, it goes back to this idea of it's not what I've done that, that allows me in. It's God's mercy and grace that will save me, that is my salvation, but it's based on my faith in Christ and my belief and my, my conviction to that faith as I have lived my life. Doesn't mean I'm perfect. Doesn't mean I'm not going to make mistakes. Doesn't mean that mistakes aren't going to outweigh any good that I've ever done. But God says, you know what? Because of your faith, my grace and my mercy covers this inner end. Yeah, and I think you're right. We, we fill in some of those gaps with our imagination. Right. And sometimes in scriptures that I don't think we fully understood, you know, reading the context. Yeah, so it's also like, have to bring up your record and say, here's, here's your record. But at the end of that record, it's like, oh, but it turns out it's been expunged. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, and I think it also depends on our definition of faith. Because I think a lot of times we look at, I live by faith. Okay, well, what is that faith? Well, that Jesus is the Son, and because He's the Son, then I have to do all of these things. Well, part of that faith is that His blood washes away my sins. And so if I'm not holding on to that, it, you can go down the rabbit hole. But if every time something comes up, man, I have faith. I... I agree. It's washed away. It it should affect how you're living. Otherwise, we truly have no hope. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't think that we have to define what faith means. Right. It is, it is, and it is not faith in ourselves. But this is the thing about it. It's faith in Him that He will do something for us. And and even when we talk about this, if you go back and read, if you read other ancient documents in Greek from the first century, like Josephus, for example, for the best example. And you look at what he means by faith, it means faithfulness, right? So it's something, it's more than just I believe in fact. It's something that should move you to be a different type of person. And that's what we cue in chapter 5 and 6. When Paul talks about this fruit spirit. I, I think we make mistakes sometimes when we say things like, and I don't think it's totally wrong, but I, I wouldn't call it like this. We say something like, Paul ends his letter with just some practical things, almost like you could just snap it off, you can almost remove those chapters. Like, I don't think so. I think they're integrated. I think he's saying if you understood your relationship with God that is caused by Jesus, let me tell you what's going to happen. Here's how this plays out. It gives you, he's still telling you how to live this out, but also some of this should be logical things that just comes from this new relationship. I think I saw somebody else saying yes. This makes me think about what happened with Moses and he put the snake up on the tree and if you looked at it, you would be healed. Okay? What's our situation? Jesus was put on a tree. If we look to him, we're going to be healed. And, and so that's by faith, but we have to look. We have to seek what he would have us to do. Yeah, that, that's a good parallel. Yeah, so the, Moses telling him to look at the snake on the tree in order to be saved. Yeah, I mean, this is, well, first of all, what are you doing there? It's like, oh, I saved myself. I looked at the snake. Oh, really? I mean, come on. <laughs> all you did is look at the snake. God was doing something for you. But you still have to look, right? But you're looking for somebody to save you. Yes. That makes me think of a thief on the cross. There's nothing to do. There's nothing to say. There's only what he's looking at. Um, the judgment question that you're bringing up, it makes me think also the book of life has names. 
I like the way you put it too, because you said that right now in this world, death is reigning. Right? This is the first death. And I think when we get if we get too focused on all of our mistakes and we start to keep questioning, what's God give us a judgment day? Then it's like we forget that part where we're supposed to start living. I mean, C.S. Lewis mentions it in The Great Divorce, a really good book. I know I keep saying that, but you should really read it. So, if you haven't read it, I've read it like 10 times. And he talks about how when you really understand where you're going, and that you're going to be with God forever, that it's almost as if heaven stretches back and changes you all the way back here. Because you start living now with a future. And that's, that's the point. It has to not be, I have died to all these other things, just focus on that. That part of it. But also, I'm living for something else. Because when you start living, where I'm... You know, we, we worry, we run in like an emergency mode where we just feel like we have time. Listen, for us Christians, the one thing we have is time. We've got plenty of it, okay, in a certain sense. And we start living like that, and it does live in a different way. All of a sudden, the, the sins of the flesh just kind of fade away, you know, it's fear of missing out. Listen, you're, gonna, you're not going to sin in anything. So all this stuff, just don't worry about it. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that suddenly starts to be a whole lot more important. Is it good fruit or is it bad fruit? You get rid of the bad stuff. I'm going to take the good stuff. 
so, you know, like I said, every day you're judged, every day you're saved. It makes judgment day a lot easier. Yeah, and I think you're right. First of all, you're clearly right. We all judge ourselves according to Jesus, and we never, we never match up. Right? The issue when people fall into a checklist mentality who are Christians is that the checklists are never long enough. Because one of those checklists has to be, be like Christ. Okay, you get check that one off. I mean, you're, you're always going to get closer to that. But yeah, it has to have some fruit now. And actually, if you look at the passages that talk about Christians being judged, many of them actually do exactly that. Like in First Peter, it talks about, I'm trying to remember how, what it exact, how it exactly says it. But it says, okay, First Peter 4, 17. Judgment begins with the family of God. It's not a family of God being judged. We kind of like, what? What does that mean? But go back to the first part of First Peter. He says that judgment is happening right now. It's not just a future event. In that case, he's saying it's happening right now. And the key is, he says, look at the way that you all are dealing with suffering. Right? This fits perfectly with Galatians. He says, you suffered for this stuff. Like, that should have been a sign. You were doing it for the right reasons. You were putting up with something. You were being judged right now. You were found not wanting. You were doing the right thing. The fruit was, was being born. And that's what Peter said. He's like, right now, if, you're, if God's going to let you all, the, the believers, go through these fiery trials, and he uses what he calls them, then just imagine what's going to happen to the unbeliever on the day of judgment, right? Looking forward. If he's going to let you put up that, just imagine what they're going to have to deal with and they're the ones causing that sort of thing. Right? What Ryan said, we think of Don and Christian tithe. I, I, I can't help but roll my eyes and I hear stuff like that. It's from the law. 
And I had for some pretty strained arguments to try to take the tide and somehow apply them to people today. I mean, some arguments and passages all over the New and Old Testament snap together to make something completely new. And I, I, that's a huge mistake. Here's the funny thing. If you go back before the law, do you remember when Abraham paid the tithe? It's like, well, wait, when did, when did Abraham pay the tithe? He paid it to Melchizedek. But the order was the order you just said. God blessed him, then he tithed. He didn't tithe to be blessed. He was blessed and therefore tithed. The order is actually flipped, and that actually fits. It's also to use Abraham as a prototype for us. This kind of flips how we think about things, and it fits how Paul talks about things. Because I've heard some things people like, listen, you've got to give, because you know, back in the Old Testament it says, do you want to rob God? Right, it's a blessing to rob God. Oh, I don't want to rob God. That sounds terrible. Okay, we were using, but the prophets were saying, but the Old Testament, when they were told that that man to give. But here's the irony. What is that? That's pressure. That's compulsion. But Paul tells, when he says to give, he says, don't give under pressure. That's how the New Living Translation translates it. Don't give her under compulsion. The point is, you shouldn't have to give under pressure. You shouldn't have to give under compulsion. You give because, like Abraham did it. That's the faithfulness of Abraham, a changed person. All right, I think it's on yes. I think we get so hung up on the, the faithfulness, being faithful unto death. We, that becomes the checklist that you were talking about. Like we're afraid we're going to leave something out, undone, that's unforgivable, that on the day of judgment is going to knock us off the queue. And, and so I feel like we overlook the freedom in Christ. I think we, we should have that sense of freedom instead of that sense of being caged by what if I don't? What if, what if, what if? Yes, this is, I, I agree. We try to define faithfulness, we define faithfulness as a checklist, and then we're stuck with that fear. And that, well, what if, what if this? You know, that's where the, I think that, that timing, Christian type of thing. I, I mean, I can't say that because, like, I went from mild annoyance to that, just open hostility to this view. But it, what that comes from is, like, well, what if I'm sitting there in front of God? If it's what if Christians are God's never good questions? I know it's driving me a dark place. And what if he says, well, you know, you're good, good and faithful, sir. Oh, wait, hold on. Hold on. Oh, the accountants just came back. You only gave 9.991%. Sorry, you didn't, your Schedule D says you didn't give enough. You're out. That's what that, it's what that fear comes from. It's like, well, i got to have exact rules so I can write this stuff down. That's just how it work like that. If it was going to say, he just say it. He could have just said, well, he could have said it for better. He didn't do that. But he knew about the law, so why didn't he use it? Because he didn't think it was relevant at that point. Also, by the way, the amount that you gave is actually more like 23 to 28%. There's more than just the time. Why, why does nobody find that? Okay. Uh, I think it's on the other hand. Yes, Tom. If we, in thinking about this whole judgment thing, there's not a single thing that we can do that will make ourselves 100% justified, 100% sinless. We're sinners from the beginning and we're still sinners. What's the difference? Jesus Christ. Yeah, exactly. It's when there's nothing we can do, but just we've got to keep that focus. We start as sinners, and at the end, we're still people who are not perfect. So what gets said? I've heard people say, I remember it was uh, Josh Sater's grandfather. People say, well, those people rely too much on grace. That's a mistake. Okay, that phrase is wrong. Let me tell you how much grace you need to get in. 100%. And not a penny less, right? That's 
the judgment then is on our faithfulness to Jesus that he has done something for us, which does for me because it is a changed life. And I agree with what was said before about freedom. But, you know, if you go and you try to apply the New Testament as a checklist to figure out exactly what to do in every, every situation, you find it's actually pretty hard. It doesn't tell me exactly what to do. So if you keep asking yourself, like, well, what, if, what if I could have done something better, guys? And what if I just assume we're going to agree this is true. Yeah, the checklist. The checklist isn't going to change your heart. The law can give you a standard. The checklist can give you a standard, but it cannot give you a motivation. In fact, it's actually quite demotivating. So leave that freedom. All right. Awesome. Thanks, you all.